I took it upon myself to read Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol at this time of the year. It may be the most famous Christmas story, fictional story, that there is, at least in the English world. A Christmas Carol was published in 1843, and it did much to stimulate the celebration of Christmas in Great Britain and in America. The character in the works, of course, have been etched uh, in our minds through the powerful retelling of the story through the various media. Dickens begins the work with this statement. I, I love to notice how an author begins. And so he begins this way. Quote, Morley, or Marley, was dead. To begin with, there is no doubt whatever about that. The uh, register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it. And Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Now, of course, he wants you to know that he's dead because that is important. Scrooge is not dead. His partner. Marley's story has ended. Scrooge has not yet finished his. Marley was Scrooge's only partner in the business of finance and lending money. Scrooge was Marley's heir, his only friend and only mourner. What kind of man was Marley? Well, listen to how Scrooge is described and you will see that they were two peas in a pod. Writes Dickens, oh, he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as a flint. And so he was as solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped a pointed nose, shriveled his cheeks, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his lips thin and blue. You get the picture, I'm sure. Here is Scrooge left behind. A hard man. And no doubt he thought due to his business, he had to be that way. There was nothing within him of human gentleness and kindness. But what makes the story is that God takes this old hard heart of stone and gives him a heart of flesh. Today, I want to speak about the miracle of change. The miracle of change. A miracle happened at Christmas. The second person of the Trinity was born in human flesh. That is a miracle. But it is also true that every time a person is born into the kingdom of God through faith in Christ, it is a miracle. 
For you cannot accomplish that for yourself. It is rooted in a deep and profound gift that comes from God. Today, then, I want you to see that changed lives really are necessary and required if there's to be any kind of justice in this world, yea, even for the future. Now, the place for us to begin is in Isaiah. As you notice, I have been preaching from the book of Isaiah. It is a marvelous book. It has in many places the gospel already in it, prophesying of Jesus Christ. Next to the Psalter, it is the most quoted book in the New Testament. It is filled with prophecies concerning the person of Jesus Christ. You know about chapter 7 and chapter 9 and chapter 11 when you hear the Messiah. But this is a great book that's quoted throughout. And what you find is that the prophet here, Isaiah, tells of a time, still yet in the future, when God will change the hearts of Judah and he will move upon a great king to release them from captivity and they will come back to their homeland ready to do and to work in the kingdom of God. He will be tender to them and bring them back and renew his covenant with them. Now, as we turn to this passage of scripture, it has an auspicious beginning. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. I want you to notice some points about the text. First of all, who is the speaker in this text in Isaiah chapter 61? Well, it has to be Isaiah in one sense. There is no question that Isaiah spoke these words and he wrote them under divine inspiration. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he gives that prophecy. He speaks for God. Yea, he is verily the mouthpiece of God. But you would not understand this text rightly if you only heard Isaiah's voice. Because this text speaks of one who is greater than Isaiah. This one speaks of one who is yet to come and who is the supreme prophet of God. Yea, he is the king of the kingdom and is the only priest, the mediator between God and us. Now you say, how do you know this pastor? Because this is one of the passages that is quoted in the New Testament. If you turn to Luke chapter 4, you will see that this passage is quoted in the New Testament. And it is quoted there and again, the person who quotes it or reads it is Jesus himself. Jesus has been active already in his public ministry. He goes back to Nazareth where he grew up. He had preached in the synagogues around and he finally went back to Nazareth and he went to the synagogue on the Lord's day. By the way, what a wonderful lesson. The Lord's people 
if they follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, will be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day to ascribe that glory to his name. And he does something else. He opens the scriptures. A scroll is handed to him. And he unrolls it to the place where we read the Old Testament lesson. Isaiah chapter 61. And then the Lord rolls the scroll up and he begins to preach after sitting down. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he concludes his sermon, a reading with this. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So whose voice is it? Obviously, it has its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is that one who said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, when those heard this, and when Jesus applied it to himself, it in some sense was offensive. Because they knew that the text was a sign of the coming of the kingdom. And if Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he is claiming to be the anointed king of the kingdom. And notice before the end of the text, they are offended and many go away. Blessed are those, he said, who take no offense at me. Now, he stops again at an auspicious place. If you read that text in Isaiah, you will notice that it continues on beyond the words of Jesus. And the very next passage or saying in the text has to do with vengeance. But Jesus does not read it. He does not mention that the day of the vengeance of your God is coming. Now this tells us some things and I want to talk about the text just briefly. I want you to notice some things. Why did he stop? Seemingly in the middle of what Isaiah said. Why did he stop? Well, he stopped because that was not part of his mission yet. What this text tells us, it treats the coming of the Messiah as a single event. But we know through history and hindsight that the Messiah comes the first time as a suffering servant. And he comes the second time as a king who will implement and institute righteousness and justice. Now, why does he come to the first time? He comes and it's called the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, this too is, has meaning to those who heard him. Those words meant something. The year of the Lord's favor. In the Old Testament, there is a concept of the year of Jubilee. Every six years, 
the people would work, but when at the end of the sixth year, there would be a seventh year, and it would be called a year of Jubilee, a Sabbath rotation, in which they would allow their fields to lie fallow. Every 49 years, or maybe 50, depending on how you count, inclusively or not, but probably 49, there was a grand year of Jubilee in which all the land was returned back to its original families and tribes. If you had sold it during that time, it was returned back. Prisoners were set free. You brought your check account in, if I could put it in modern terms, you come and showed how much you owed and it was forgiven. Some of you would like that, wouldn't you? When you like to have somebody say, you know, from this point on, you have no debt. It was called a year of Jubilee. And that phrase meant that Jesus was declaring his mission as a kind of year of Jubilee. When the prisoner would be set free, debts would be paid. He is referring this, of course, to our sinful condition being bound and he sets us free, and the blind see. Christ came the first time to set us free and to pay the penalty for our sins and to free us from the power of sin. Scrooge became changed, didn't he? There would be no Christmas carol if Scrooge had not changed. That's the great part of that story, isn't it? Here is a man whose heart is as hard as a flint, who became the greatest celebrator of Christmas and all that it means because his heart was changed. Something had happened to him. He had been set free. And that is the power of that story, it seems to me. That's why it grips our heart. But I want you to notice, not only was Scrooge changed in his heart, it tended to change everything around him. Remember that when Jesus came, he came to change the hearts of people. There was a famous bestseller, maybe the best, first bestseller in history, was written at the end of the last century, uh, the turn of the 1900s. It was entitled, The Essence of Christianity. It was a book by a very, very famous world-known scholar by the name of Adolf Harnack. And immediately it was seen to be a seminal work and it was translated, I think, immediately into nine languages. And some people say it was the first bestseller in history. And what Harnack does in that book is he tries to distill down to the very nub of things. What is Christianity? Now follow me here. He said Christianity is really the teachings of Jesus Christ and they are ethical and moral. And that is the, if you will, the essence of Christianity. You say, why do you men mention this, Pastor? Because this great scholar who really knew the New Testament, 
who really knew the Old Testament, who really knew Christian doctrine, has reduced Christian teaching and Christianity to morality. He obviously could not believe in his own heart the Christmas story. He could not believe in his own heart that the second person of the Trinity came into our world and was born into our world to seek and to save the lost. Really, what Christianity is, is coming to know a person and having your heart changed and being open to him and to his Father in heaven. Christianity, in its essence, is not reducible to simply moral yeses and nos and do's and don'ts. It is knowing a person and having your heart changed and your heart opened. Whatever Christianity is, and it's many things, its essence is indeed a relationship with the Son of God. Knowing Christ. What a wonderful title, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. That really is the essence of Christianity. How can I know the supreme being? I can know the supreme being through that one who bridged, if you will, eternity and came into time. Who was the eternal spirit who came into human flesh, the material world that he had made. And he did so that he might save me from my sins and open my heart to new things, to the things of God. That's why this is a year of jubilee. Isaiah is proclaiming a year of jubilee when he talks about the year of the Lord's favor, where the prisoner is free, everything is new, the debt is forgiven. That's what Christmas is. And that's what the coming of Christ is. Just think about it. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner is changed to someone who is the biggest life of the party. That's a wonderful story. It's a powerful story. And the reason that the Christmas carol is so powerful is that it's actually based on the structures of reality, truth, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. We need to be changed Christ came to change the heart and the life. Christ's birth is a miracle, truly. But so is the miracle of a changed life. And every person who's ever come to know Christ has experienced a changed life. Now, he comes the second time, make no mistake. The year of Jubilee is not complete in some sense. When he comes the second time, he comes without sin unto salvation. He comes to execute and to establish justice once and for all. He came the first time that we might be born again. He comes the second time that we might be removed and be fulfilled completely in our new nature. I want you to see verse 11 in this passage. You see it in the text. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. 
when he comes the second time, he comes to renew all things and to establish righteousness for eternity. The coming of Jesus Christ then is a new beginning. Changed heart and changed lives. We sorely need, don't we? Scrooge was changed. He began to see his environment around him changed. I want to talk about change and your environment around you. There is a political belief, and it must be the dominant political belief in most of the world, that if you get your politics right, the world will get right. That if you get everything put in place just right, and you have the right rules and everything, then everything else will fall into place. And the politician's business is to promise you that in some ways. And oh my, do we get promises. It is to persuade you of that. It is to use all the right language and the key words. And if you fall in line, then, and you get square with that political viewpoint, then everything's going to be made right. All the great political movements of history, in some ways, are based on trying to establish some kind of justice. Now, let me say that that will never happen. It is what I call utopianism. Human beings cannot in themselves establish righteousness of themselves. Why? Because you cannot do that without a changed heart. And at the second coming of Christ, he will come and all things will be made new through his power. He will establish his kingdom. No human being can bring it in. But I don't want you to despair, though. One of the amazing things about Christ's first coming is that he changes hearts and lives, and it also filters down into the lives of other people and blessings. It is no accident that such things as hospitals and communication and a high standard of living follows those places where the gospel went. There is a sense in which the gospel not only changes individual lives, but it begins to change some of the environment around, not in some utopian way, but just simply because of the grace and presence of God in lives. I was reading a business magazine about three years ago, and the reason I know it was about three years ago uh, is that uh, I pegged it with something I was doing at the time. I don't remember the magazine, but I remember the article. And the article was about a company that was trying to establish some businesses in Africa. And what the writer, who happened to represent the company, began to say, he said an interesting thing. I don't think that he was a Christian or anything about him had to do with Christianity. But he said this. He says, in certain places we noticed that the business climate was better. And when we began to inspect why, why the business climate was better, we always noticed that it was a place 
where there was a vibrant religious outpouring. And it so happens, and you read between the lines, it was always Christian. And he says, where this religious outpouring took place of people being enthusiastic, he said, actually, the people's lives were better. They had better morals. They had a better worth ethic. And they had a better outlook on life. And our businesses did better there. Now, I don't know the religious outlook of this person at all, but this is a testimony to how truly when hearts and lives are changed individually, things begin to change around people. Dickens captures that so wonderfully in The Christmas Carol. Christianity cannot be reduced to morality. Christianity is about God's gift to us, His Son, who releases us from captivity to sin and Satan and changes our hearts and changes our little world, for there'll come a time when He will change the entire world and establish justice forever. The Father, if you will, through his Son, has declared a jubilee for us when he came down at Christmas. Praise be to God. Amen.